Good evening, Barry. How is it going, good friend? Um, how's it going your side? It's going well, Chad. It's been it's been one hell of a week. I'll be honest. I'm feeling yeah. a little bit run down, and I just had hockey practice now. So if I'm a little bit out of breath, I do apologize for that. But across the pond is one of my favorite parts of the week, and so I'm super chuffed to be here. Super good to see your face, Chaddy. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, dude, good, good. Uh, it's been a crazy week, just like yours as well. Um, kind of one of those where, um, as a result of the fact that the US had one bank holiday or public holiday, whatever you want to call it, over the Easter break, and the UK had two, well, I had one. Um, so you know, I kind of had to make up for make up for that lost day. Uh, but but it's okay. But it's okay. We all here. Uh, things are plowing forward. Obviously, with the the move. I mean, Barry, it's quite a nostalgic episode for me in a way. Uh, because this is going to be the last time that this is my set, if you'd like, uh, for Across the Pond, before we move on to hopefully bigger and better things, if if, if you'd like. So doing well, uh, but it's also been quite a crazy week. Yeah, I hear you, man. Uh, it's it's quite, a, quite an interesting one because you've been looking to move for a long time now. It's been a long yep. time in the process, right? And so I'm very chuffed that it's finally coming right. Um, but I'm going to miss the set. We're going to have to find a, a new little background, see what you can do with your lights and bring across the pond to a brand new location, which is always fun. Of course. You know these lights are coming with me, Barry. They're not going anywhere. Uh, and uh, and there's, there's, you know, there's, there's not a question that I'm going to make as much of an effort as possible to have a, a great looking set up in the background. But it, it might take a little while. So, uh, you know, do hang in there, uh, you know, dear listeners, because, you know, this doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, but nevertheless, Barry... We've got quite a bit to chat about this week. Shall we get into it? Let's dive right in, Chad. The week that was. The week that was, aside from the crazy week that both of us have had, um, some other stuff has been happening in the world. Uh, some stuff that people actually find interesting, Barry. So maybe we should uh, cover some <laughs> of that. Um, and to be honest, I mean, based on the title, certainly of the live stream, um, we, we're going to be talking a lot about the idea of freedom and this crazy year that we've had. It's more than a year now. Um, basically, this UK roadmap of easing from this last lockdown that has lasted an age um, is going ahead. It's plowing ahead. Boris uh, chatted with us on Monday on the bank holiday um, and basically said, yeah, from next week, Monday, the 12th of April, uh, the easing is going to happen, next stage of unlocking. So that is on the 12th of April, shops are opening, outdoor hospitality is back on, gyms are opening, hairdressers and all of that kind of stuff is opening. Um, so yeah, quite a, quite a big ease. Um, and I mean, I know for you, Barry, you know, for the last little while, you've, you've had a very mild version of a lockdown. Uh, but I'm sure you've been chatting to some of your mates on this side of the pond. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you understand this is quite a big deal for us. It really is, Chad. You guys have been in lockdown for way longer than anyone else has been around the world. And so it's super cool to see you guys finally coming out of it. And it, it, it's about time, right? The vaccine numbers yeah. are looking really good. The UK have done an incredible job of getting those into the arms of as many people as possible. Yeah. And so it's really good to see things starting to open up. And so the 12th of April can't come soon enough, Chad. I'm sure you're <laughs> counting down the hours so you can go out and get back into some sort of normal life, whatever that means, post-pandemic 
But what a journey it's been over a year now of this crazy, crazy time that we'll never forget. And uh, it really feels like the sun is coming out at the other end. And so I think, Chad, let's let's not get complacent, but let's keep like looking forward. And hopefully this is going to be the start of our long recovery. I really, really hope so. I mean, there's quite a quite a few topical things that we need to discuss uh, that that's kind of happened this week, um, and and as we look to this long term strategy of how we learn to live with this this thing that is COVID nineteen. Um, but but like you say, the the vaccine numbers are looking really good. I, I think from early I looked today, uh, about thirty four million doses of the first doses of the vaccine have been given out uh, here in the UK. So really plowing ahead with, with that journey. Um, I mean, that's more than half of the entire population uh, from my sort of last mm. recollection. Um, and, and in terms of the, the case numbers and death numbers and all that kind of stuff, it's 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 plunging down. Um, so yeah, it is doing really, really well on this end. Um, and, you know, just in terms of in terms of that stuff that we need to discuss, in terms of how we're going to live with this, um, there's been basically a 180 degree turn on this idea of of COVID certificates, uh, COVID passports, whatever you want to call it. Um, essentially, the idea that you need to kind of walk around with a piece of paper to prove that you uh, are able to manage an infection with the disease. And uh, I sent you a video not too long ago, Barry, um, which was a nice little assembly clip of a suite of politicians, starting with Boris Johnson, saying there is not a chance you will ever have to take a COVID certificate to get into the pub. And, you know, a couple of other others uh, sort of, you know, singing from that same hymn book. And now we've seen a 180 degree turn on that, uh, where, you know, essentially that is what people are now proposing. Uh, we, we're going to carry around COVID certificates. Uh, and so that certificate would, would state that you have either had the vaccine you have immunity from the virus, uh, from having it in the last six months, or that you've taken a recent test. And uh, from his last briefing on Monday, as I just mentioned, he also added that in the next two stages of unlocking, so that is up to sort of the end of June, uh, that's not going to be, you're not going to have to take one of those along to the shops. But essentially, beyond that, um, it seems like this is going to become a norm. It's a, re- it's a really big deal, Chad, and I'm not quite sure exactly what the thinking is here because, like you say, it, it has been a 180 turn, and it's a very controversial thing because what this essentially is is it takes away your freedom, right? Yeah. It, it compels you to go and get this vaccine. It compels you to to kind of carry on this document that gives you the right to enter public spaces in, in a meaningful way. And it's been a big discussion around the world as to like how we're going to deal with that. And for a lot of democratic states and for a lot of democratic countries, the, the idea is that we should never be in a position where we're discriminating against someone on the basis of this document, on the basis of the vaccine, right? So at the end of the day, the vaccine should still be optional. Like even though I personally believe that it's a good idea, like I, I want freedom to, to, to reign and I want people to be able to have the opportunity to decline the vaccine if they, if they don't feel like it's right for them. That's the whole nature of what democracy is supposed to be about. But the moment you put this sort of passport in, in action, it, it kind of, it, it does that indirectly. It kind of says like, you have to go and get the vaccine now if you want to have any sort of normal life. So Chad, I'm, I'm curious as to like what the what the, the pushback on the ground has been. I'm sure people have been angry about this. I'm sure people have been raising a bit of a stir because it's a very controversial thing and, and it goes against what a lot of other countries are doing in the space. So do you yeah. have a sense as to how people are feeling on the ground about this? Yeah, so I mean, based on the line, the line of questioning of journalists um, at the, at the briefing, um, it, it kind of went around the uh, the angle of 
will this be voted for in parliament? And I guess a lot of people are, are concerned that it, it's a, legis- a, you know, a piece of legislation that just kind of slips through, if you'd like, uh, that all of a sudden, um, you know, a key topic, a, a key decision that, that needs to be made just kind of slips through. Um, because of the powers that the government has at the moment to impose lockdowns, impose regulations, all that kind of th- all that kind of thing, um, MPs want to be able to debate this and decide whether mm. um, you know those those costs, which are you know privacy and of course um, you know th- that discrimination point, Barry, uh, whether whether those justify the the kind of freedom that we are going to be able to to have. Um, and so you know when you when you kind of think about how we lived our our life before. Um, and you know now when you want to go to a nightclub or, or even to go to the shops, any shop that's not essential, uh, you have to carry around one of these things. So uh, you know it certainly it certainly is uh, quite quite a big thing that that's being imposed. To talk to your point of countries around the world and how they're handling it, um, at this stage the EU and the UK look to be taking this pretty seriously um, as a, as a possible solution to living with uh, you know the, the pandemic going forward. Uh, whereas this week we saw the U.S. have categorically ruled it out. Um, and, you know, the statement that they've made is that they would not support a system that requires Americans to carry a credential. Um, and, you know, it's an, it's an interesting one. Interesting, uh, you know, sort of topic to, to watch in the future. And it, talk, it talks to a larger, a larger conversation here, Chad, about... Throughout this whole pandemic, it's obviously been in a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-generation type pandemic. And there's been a lot of changes we've made to the democratic system. We've, we've given governments way more power than they used to have, right? We've kind of locked ourselves indoors. We've let governments kind of curtail shops, yep. curtail business, and all these sorts of things. And so they've, they've really used their power, and they've overreached in that in that respect. And it, it was needed because this thing was like kind of spreading very, very fast, and we needed that sort of authoritarian type type actions. Where a lot of people, where the, where the critics of this come into is that what's going to happen when this pandemic dies down? Because now that they've had a taste of this, now that they've kind of overreached a little bit, yep. are they going to pull back? Are they going to go yep. back to where they were beforehand? Or are those restrictions and those and that extra power that they now hold is going to stick around? Yep. If you're a politician right now and you've had all of this ability to really control how your state works or how your region works, it's difficult to not give that away. Like we know that power corrupts people. And yeah. so it kind of talks to this larger conversation about how do we get back to a stage pre-pandemic where the freedoms and the rights of individual citizens still reign supreme. We understand that we went through like a war-like scenario where the government had to step in and put like really kind of radical things in place. But yeah. we have to be able to pull those back if we're going to get back to some sort of democracy that we care about. And so that's what makes it so controversial. And so, yeah, it's... I find it hard to think how they're going to make this work, Chad. I, re- I really don't know how the people are going to actually um, keep doing it, how they're going to enforce it, all of these considerations. It seems to me like a, a losing battle. I don't know what you think. Yeah, especially when you have such a, a large percentage of the population vaccinated. When you, you know, when you when you looked at why these vaccines were being deployed, uh, and obviously the age bands, the, the approach that was was taken. Um, you know, certainly the feeling that we got is that it's being done to protect the NHS, obviously reduce as much casualty as possible. Uh, but now all the vulnerable groups have been taken care of, um, you know, and, and obviously once you, just because you have the vaccine, it doesn't mean you can't still carry it and, and transfer it necessarily. Um, obviously, it just means that you are not going to land up in hospital. You have a lower risk of landing up in hospital. 
Um, so, you know, it certainly, it certainly seems like an interesting one for me. And, and, and even some suggestions this week as well, that, that the vaccine only protects you for sort of six months as well. So w- where are we going to get to? Are we going to have different categories of certificates? Um, you know, it, it, it all really does, you know, it, it's really interesting. Um, and, and I certainly feel on the ground uh, that there's, there's a lot of pushback against it. And luckily, and, and I think it is a good thing, there seems to have been some sort of awakening where people are now starting to question the powers that we've given government during this period. Mm-hmm. And uh, and like you say, you know, should that power, that level of power return to some sort of level of normal, um, especially now that we, we're kind of out of the danger, out of the, out of the trouble zone, you know? Yeah, kind kind of the, the analogy I draw, Chad, is is when you think back to what happened in nine eleven back in the US, and they had this ginormous terrorist attack, and it it caused all of the airport security to go up by like a hundred hundred x right, because it was a huge overreaction to this really really tragic event, <clears throat> yeah. and those powers of being able to stop you and strip search you and take all the shoes and all the all the crazy freedoms we gave up in the airport type environment. Those have stuck around, especially yeah. in the States, right? Yeah. And so there's a, there's a big consideration here is when, when this kind of black swan event happens and we're naturally going to overcompensate because we're desperately trying to protect our citizens, we're desperately trying to protect each other. It's how do we how do we swing that pendulum back to some sort of normalcy? We can't just leave things in the state that they were in during a pandemic because that's just not a normal state of affairs. And we all kind of went, we all kind of abided by those rules with the understanding that it was a temporary solution. And so the moment you start seeing these sorts of powers continue beyond, say, a vaccination period or beyond herd immunity and all these sorts of things, it gets very, very murky. Yeah. And for someone like the UK, where they've had a lot of political turmoil in the last couple of years, you really don't need more turmoil. You kind of want a stable government that can kind of step out of the way, let the citizens do what needs to be done, and get those economies back to running at full at full tilt. So we can kind of get past this and start repaying some of the all the grants and all the, the money that was lent in order to, to keep people alive during this period. Yep. So yeah, Chad, I, I'm very curious to see what happens. I'm I'm skeptical as to whether they're going to be able to pull something like this off, at least to a major scale. <clears throat> I think they need a lot of pushback in Parliament if this does go through. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then and then of course there is the the, the next level, which is travel. Um, and and obviously you need to have some level of coordination globally for for that to happen. Um, and you know just in, in terms of travel and this the, this idea of variants and importing the virus and all that kind of stuff, I kind of. I kind of support the, the idea of COVID passports from, from a point of view of, of travel. But when it comes to the local idea, the, the idea of you know, gathering within this country that we all, we all live in together um, and in certain settings where you know, potentially the, the risk is higher, um, I, I, do, I do have a slightly different view. Um, so you know, in terms of, in terms of the, the next few steps, uh, j- just in terms of looking at how far we've got in terms of testing, Barry, um, back in the first wave, back in the, in the first lockdown, I know friends who were virtually certain that they had the virus and were unable to get a test uh, because you know, the, the, the level of tests that were available back then uh, you know, were so low. You had to basically be in hospital, uh, sort of on your on a ventilator, whatever the case is, for them to actually test you. Uh, where if you had the symptoms and you're at home and you you kind of figured you might have it, but but weren't sure, it was a lot harder to get a test. Whereas now, uh, however many months later, a year later, um, essentially every single person in England will now have access to f- two free COVID rapid tests every week. Um, so you can either collect that at your local pharmacy uh, or it'll be delivered to your house. Uh, obviously, you need to kind of set that up beforehand. Uh, but that is starting this week, Friday. 
um, so as we're recording this on the 8th of April. Um, so that that's quite a, a big jump uh, in terms of obviously testing capacity, and and that's a crucial part of of getting this uh, you know under control. Something we don't often speak about, Chad, is how amazing the efforts have been when it comes to rabbit testing, when it comes to vaccine development, when yep. it comes to kind of getting to this point right now. Like if you think about the fact that vaccines and these sorts of things normally take years and years to be developed and tested and get into the public, what we've been able to do, what the scientists have been able to do has been absolutely incredible. And like yep. you say, going from a period where testing was very hard to come by, where it was slightly like not not 100% um, effective and all these sorts of things to a point now where testing is becoming a commodity is absolutely amazing. And it's the kind of good news that I wish we saw on the news. I wish we were celebrating these sorts of things mm. because yeah. unfortunately, as we know, the news just focuses on, on the terrible things that happen, right? But all of this developments and this very, very fast um, response to this pandemic from all around the world has been absolutely amazing. This is a great example of that. Um, testing is so important. If, if your testing is working, if your testing is widespread, you've got, it, you've got the data you need to be able to control this thing. And then you can make smarter decisions. Without those testing, you're just kind of in the dark. And then you have yeah. to do these blanket lockdowns because you just don't know what the situation is. So yeah, really cool to see. Yeah, I agree. It is it is pretty remarkable uh, if, you, if you look back at what we've achieved. Um, so I mean, some of the other stuff that we've we've achieved as well. I, I might actually just pause for a quick second just to acknowledge uh, one of our listeners, uh, Chantal, who's tuned in uh, from the Netherlands, which is always very cool. Uh, a long-time listener across the pond. Welcome, Chantal, uh, to your first you know live uh, episode. Uh, but but in, in terms of some of the other remarkable stuff that we've seen, Barry. Um, of course, the vaccines were nothing short of remarkable. Um, and now that we've got such a huge volume that have been rolled out into people's arms, um, we've seen something come out this week about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and, you know, there's been speculation about this for a couple of weeks, um, the idea of these rare blood clots and whether the vaccine is actually, you know, directly linked, if, it's, if, it, if there's a causal link to these blood clots. And uh, yesterday, the, the UK and EU medical regulators came on at, at a very similar time, actually, and, and made statements. They held press briefings, uh, basically saying that the answer to that question is yes, there is a causal link. Um, and they've given a whole bunch of, um, you know, potential reasons for this, uh, you know, Im immunoresponses and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but they've, they've kind of stressed that this is still very rare and that the benefit of this vaccine still far outweighs this risk. Um, this risk is within the first two weeks of having it. Um, and there's been no proof of anyone, uh, you know, having these blood clots after the, after their first dose. So, so for the, they should go ahead with their second dose. Um, but, but that, that level is currently sitting at about four million, four people within a million people who take the jab. Um, so quite a small number, but obviously, when you look at uh, you know the the, the the quantum of people who have received it, um, it's it's you know it's still noteworthy. It's still worth worth talking about. And and the interesting thing from this briefing that I found interesting, Barry, is that there was no distinct links between age and gender. So they couldn't narrow this down uh, to a certain you know subset of the population who have taken the the vaccine, uh, and that it is. It is it is a natural risk, um, which I thought was I thought was good in terms of the the transparency for both of these bodies to go out there, obviously knowing that it might have an effect on the uptake of the vaccine and the remaining uh, people who who need to get their jab, 
but but obviously you know being transparent enough to kind of go in and acknowledge that this is a risk um and you know obviously saying that piece now the last the last thing i wanted to mention on this barry is um th- this idea of, of risk versus reward um, and obviously they're making the decision that on the whole uh, it still is worthwhile taking the vaccine even though there is this risk of blood clots but there is an exception because what they did is they they sort of spread out um, essentially the risk of a person landing up in hospital and obviously fatal risk from contracting the virus versus the risk of getting a blood clot from the virus and for all age bands that checked out except for one and that is the age band that you and I sit in Barry and that is or I, I might be wrong but I sit in it uh, 20 to <laughs> 29 um, and essentially How if you're in that I am, right? <laughs> Potentially one year older than me. I don't know. I started school a year early, so I don't know. Um, But yeah, in that age band, essentially it is more risky to take the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine than to not, which I found very interesting. Yeah, Chad, I've I've got a slightly different take on this. I've been following the story. Oh, geez. I've been following the story a little bit. And I think a lot of it comes down to people not thinking in a very probabilistic way, right? right. When, when you say something like four in a million, it's it's very difficult to understand exactly what that means from a, from a stats point of view, right? Mm. And, and the headline, of course, is going to say, vaccine causes blood clots. And that's what causes all of the chaos. And that's why I think that, that the UK regulators had to come out and sort of speak up about it and say, listen, we acknowledge this is a potential causal problem. Um, these are the stats. These are situations. It's still much, much better to get the vaccine than not. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's sort of PR that they have to do because people just run away with headlines and they don't understand what these studies are showing. Based on what I've read, based on some of the studies that I've seen, four in a million is kind of, it's at the same range as any other sort of medication when it comes to blood clotting. I think I read somewhere that, that that girls who are on the pull have something like, an, like a yeah. 2x that, like yeah. eight in a million chance of developing blood clots, right? Yeah. So I think it's 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 a it's a it's it's very important to acknowledge and to understand, but at the same time, you're talking about such such small pieces that should mm. not overwhelm the the benefits of this vaccine on, on the whole. And so I think it's 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 again it's one of those things that you can't just read headlines; you have to dig a little bit deeper. And this feels to me less so like an acknowledgement of okay, cool, this is the situation, but more trying to just kind of protect the PR side of things and and, and reassure people that are running away with the story that the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to cause blood clots in a sense. Mm. And, and we have to think about this. We, we, we can't, we can't go through this pandemic and we, I mean, we've had a similar situation in the past where one thing goes wrong out of a gazillion and then we want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, and it, we just can't do that because there's yeah. so many factors in this thing. Four people out of a million is not a sample size that's, that's significant. Like you don't know what caused those blood clots mm. in fairness. Like you, you can say there's causality, but I, I, I doubt whether you can actually prove that in a very scientific way. All of these things, we, we've seen COVID affects people in such different ways. The vaccines are affect people in such different ways. And what we have to do is we have to think of the bigger picture. And and so I, I, I for one, am, I'm still fully behind people getting vaccinated because I, I don't think these, these figures are worth worrying about, to be honest. I think yeah. we have to understand that some people are going to react to the vaccine in, in an adverse way, and we have to deal with that. And that's kind of a risk of this thing. But we, we we created this vaccine in less than a year. It's like we can't expect this thing to be absolutely perfect in every single respect, right? And so I just worry that headlines like this kind of get get 
get blown up out of proportion and we forget about the amazing benefits it does have for the other 999,996 people, right? Yeah, I agree. And uh, I, I can see I can see why you've taken that approach that it's more of a PR thing. Um, because, you know, as we know, silence is is a lot of the time a whole lot worse than just coming out and, and addressing the elephant in the room. Um, so th- that is interesting. And of, and of course, it is it is a small number uh, in, in the bigger in the big, bigger picture. And I also saw some some articles mentioning that blood clots, if you actually have COVID uh, without the vaccine, uh, you know, your, your, your risk of of blood clots is even higher so it is interesting but but certainly to address that 20 to 29 bracket uh, the government have basically come out and said that they're not going to be giving that age bracket the oxford astrazeneca vaccine and that they have sufficient doses of the pfizer and moderna vaccines um to to give that bracket so when my time comes, it must be nice to um, be spoiled for choice. Chad. It must be nice to be spoiled for choice. Hey? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's not a bad uh, position to be in. So the government have basically said that they they have enough doses to um, you know to administer to all of the pop, adult population within that age bracket. Can you to give them? Can you send doses. some down here, please? Can you send some down our side as a bliff? I mean, on that, Barry, what's what's the current state of play? What's the current situation over there? It's it's a dog show, Chad. To be honest, mm. um, they they had planned to have a million doses out to healthcare workers by the end of March, and I think they were at two hundred thirty thousand at the end of March. Okay. Um, so it's way slower than expected. There's been lots of holdups with the distribution centers. Talking to some of the healthcare workers. Um, who've got their vaccines already, once they're there and they're in the queue, it's actually quite efficient. But okay. a lot of people have, have gone to the hospital two or three times to find out they ran out of vaccines that day and they've had to come and make another booking for future. So it doesn't bode well if we can't just do our healthcare workers mm. in an efficient way when we start opening up to the public, Chad. So I'm a little bit skeptical as to when when I'm going to get mine. Um, I, I, I There was a lot of memes going around Twitter today like showing people like, with white hair saying getting my vaccine in 2067 <laughs> so hopefully that's not the case um but it's it's going it's going way slower than than, yeah. than i'd like chad and i think that there's a little bit of frustration building here because um there really should be more urgency than there is um mm. and so i don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks something to monitor definitely um i mean it's, it's worrying for me uh, still with the still being optimistic and there's the hope of of coming to south africa this year because it's now been almost two years since i was last in south africa um so you know i've, I've still got this glimmer of hope but with the with the concerns of of the south african variant and uh, obviously the vaccine levels not under control at the moment um i don't know i don't know i think that hope has, has been squashed to be honest and, and i think unfortunately i think that's fair yeah, I think so. And also, Chad, well, what, what worries me is my Instagram stories. That's what worries me. I see <laughs> lots and lots and lots of proper parties of like yeah. thousands of people in bars and in, and in clubs and stuff doing their thing. And so we are, we are expecting another wave after this Easter break. Um, and so I'm, I'm expecting the next kind of week or so we go through a bit of a, a, bit of a wave. Um, but I think you know, a lot of people I'm seeing are just kind of living life as normal. And mm. so, yeah, I, I don't quite know what that's going to do. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens for the next month. Um, it's, it's, I'm tired of this, Chad. I really am tired of having <laughs> to worry about this. Don't, don't you wish we could just kind of oh. wish, wish it away with a little wand? I don't tell know. Me about it. Yeah, tell me about it. It's the roller coaster, though. It's, it's a roller coaster of one week. Um, 
you know, being internally conflicted when you see a friend of yours doing something uh, that maybe they shouldn't. And then, you know, the next week, uh, it's all safe to do that. And and then you kind of felt like an <laughs> idiot for, for feeling that way. Um, it, it really has been an absolute roller coaster, not just not just in yourself, but in also, you know, judging the, the circle around you. And it, it's been it's been really tough. It really, really has. And you just don't know how paranoid you're supposed to be. You don't know if you're being too paranoid or not paranoid enough. Different situations are so different. And yeah, it's 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 really tough when you look at your look at friends of yours who are just living their life as normal and you kind of try to stay at home and trying to keep to yourself as much as possible. And you wonder you do wonder if you're missing a trick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that psychological game is always gonna be difficult. And I think it was easier back easier a couple of months ago when it was much more strict and I could very easily wag my finger and say, yeah. nope, yeah. that's wrong. Don't do that. <laughs> but now it's sort of in a gray area. It's like mm. we're kind of back to normal, but we're also kind of still in the pandemic and it's a bit hard to know exactly how I should be um, kind of conducting myself. And I've been trying to keep to a very small circle. I haven't been having ginormous parties with people, but I have started to see some friends that, yeah. I, that I trust yeah. and whatnot. And so starting to open up in that respect. Um, but I always wonder, like, how paranoid am I supposed to be now? I've just got no idea. It's so hard to know. It really is. Um, all righty. That is the week that was. Let's now talk about some stuff Barry found interesting. Stuff I found interesting. Right. So, Chad, I don't know if you have followed uh, Mr. Bruno Mars throughout his career, yeah. but he's been a little bit quiet for the last year or two. And I didn't quite know why he was off the radar because um, I really love his music. I, I think he's an absolutely amazing performer. He's one of those guys that I would pay absolutely anything to see live because <laughs> yeah. his shows must be insane. His Super Bowl performance was one of my favorite Super Bowl halftime shows of any of them just because he's got so much soul and swagger. He's honestly one of the coolest dudes in the world. And I look at him and I look at myself. I'm like, I'm so lame compared <laughs> to Bruno Mars. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but anyway... Very, very exciting. He released a brand new song. And I don't know if cool. you've heard it, Chad. So let me start there. Have you heard his new song with, with Anderson Pack? I haven't. I haven't heard his new song. I, I feel like I should have. What have I been doing? It's been all Justin Bieber on my side, Barry. It's been, it's been justice <laughs> on repeat. Um, I, I haven't heard of it. Uh, but yeah, I, I get the excitement because, you know, as you said, Bruno Mars is he's incredible. And I have watched a couple of, of his performances live, like not actually live, but the replays of him live. Yes, and yes. He, he is the real deal. He is flawless in his live performances. He is so good. Chad. And what I like about him is that he, he does dance choreography with his band and stuff, but it's very subtle and it's very tasteful. It's mm. not like crazy, crazy productions. It's often just him and like three or four uh, like saxophonists and trumpeters and, and backup singers. And they do very simple movements, but in such amazing rhythm and such amazing groove yeah. that I, I really just love him. And so Chad, I'm very excited for you to go and see this song. The song is called Leave the Door Open. And it is part, it's part of a collaboration with another artist called Anderson Pack, who... Okay. I, I knew about, but didn't really, hadn't really dug into his music before. And he's also amazing. And so they've come together and they've formed this, I want to say band. I don't, I don't know if they're going to do more songs or just the one song. Okay. I'm not exactly sure what the what the idea is going forward. But they called this band called Silk Sonic. And it's the perfect name for this sort of song, Chad, because what they've done is they've gone back to a 70s retro vibe, you know, like disco balls, the big hair, the shiny jackets. And they've brought that into the modern kind of musical world in a way that's so fascinating. 
And if you listen to the song, it's it's very Bruno Mars, it's very poppy, it's very kind of retro in that respect. But the amount of the amount of nuance and the key changes and the real musicianship behind the scenes is amazing. So for those who are watching, we can look a little bit through the video here. It's <laughs> such a cool video. It makes me feel so lame because they look so insanely oh. <laughs> cool. Um, and I just think it's it's such an amazing song, Chad. I'm really excited for you to have a look. I'm so sad I haven't heard it yet. Uh, you know, just looking at the visuals here. I mean, it's it's the, it's even weirder not having heard it, and I'm and I'm bringing up the music video in the background. Um, <laughs> it looks really cool. I can just I can just kind of see the rhythm. I can see the groove. Um, I'm. I'm dead keen to to get stuck into this one straight after the show. And what I recommend, Chad, is if if for anyone listening at the moment who's who is a musician, go and listen to some of the breakdowns of how they made the song and some of the behind the scenes because it really opens opens your eyes to how mm. complex some of this music is. What I really like about Bruno Mars is that even though he's operating in a pop like world, which is very four to the floor, very simple, yep, like yep. very repetitive, like mass media appeal. He's got so much musicianship behind the scenes because he comes from a jazz and a Motown background, right? And so if you listen to some of the, the musical breakdowns by people way smarter than me when it comes to music, you'll really appreciate how nuanced the song is while still being incredibly listenable. And so it's cool. been one of those that's been on repeats this whole week, Chad. It really is a feel-good anthem, and uh, I, I can't wait for you to hear it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I mean, I, I haven't heard it, so... I can't comment further than that, but I'm I'm dead keen. I mean, while we're talking about uh, Justin Bieber's justice, have you? Because I mean, I remember the first time you listened to it and gave it a full listen through, Barry. I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of his older stuff, like before his voice broke type of stuff. Um, but but you know, his last last baby, two albums, baby, baby, oh. <laughs> his last two albums, uh, Purpose and Justice, uh, have been stand out for me honestly stand out for me i know you said it was a little bit overproduced and i get it some of the, the auto tune was turned just a little bit too high um, but it's <laughs> certainly grown on me even more than i thought i mean peaches what a song it's a great song <laughs> it really is a great song and, and and what i realized after listening to it a bunch of times chad was that mm. that song was made for social media the number of tiktoks Indeed. and instagram stories that are using peaches it's it's yeah. perfect marketing and it's the most amazing hits to come off the record so yeah i really love peaches the other song i really love is ghost that's probably my favorite song yeah. on the album yeah. um it's 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 really really powerful and i think the reason i like it is because it's not as produced as the others right mm. I said to you offline that I'm a little, a little bit frustrated because he's got such an amazing voice. You don't need to throw 18 kilograms of auto tune onto it. You don't need that. You, you, like I much prefer him a little, when it's a little bit stripped down. I know that's just mm. my taste. Um, and so the songwriting is brilliant as always. Like he really is a superstar, but I wish there was a little bit less auto tune, a little bit more kind of stripped down stuff in there. And that's what I get in Ghost. And so for me, Ghost mm. has been the one I've been sticking to for the most part. Um, but I'm interested to, I'm interested to hear that it's growing on you. So maybe I need to yeah. give it a, a few more listens to see if it grows on me too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, Peaches, Ghost, and I think my third is As I Am. I think that's the song. Um, I think that's one with Khalid. Um, so yeah. Great album. I've I've been thoroughly enjoying it. Um, and then of course, you know, with the, with the little bits of of Martin Luther King there, um, obviously in a in a very you know important t like from a, from a timing perspective, um, certainly a reason why he threw that in there. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was quite interesting too. And to be completely honest, I hadn't really listened to as much of that speech before. 
um, until it's kind of midway through Justin Bieber's album. So, you know, what's your take on that? Did you have any thoughts uh, when that popped up? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, mean, I think Justin Bieber has, has always been very much in that in that world. He's he's never really been a traditional pop artist. He's, he's kind of he's spoken out and used his platform quite a lot, and he's matured a lot over the over the years. Like if you think back to old Justin Bieber, who got in those car crashes and the chaos with the paparazzi and stuff, he really has matured. And I think since he got married, he's become a much more thoughtful and um, nuanced person and, and musician. And this is an example of that, bringing that into, into the album. And you can see kind of pieces of it throughout the album. It's almost a theme or motif throughout. And that's mm. why it's called justice is, yep. is this idea that we have to work towards some sort of justice that we haven't had in the past. Um, and so I, I'm glad to see that those pieces of audio are being pulled into the mainstream. And like you say, I bet there are millions of people out there who've never heard that speech, but because mm. it's in a Justin Bieber yep. album, they might get a chance to hear it. And we all, well, we all know Martin Luther King was one of the best orators in history. Like one of the most amazing speakers we've ever walked the planet. And so the more people can hear his speeches, the better. Completely, completely agree. Um, yeah, what an album. Give it another listen through, Barry. Uh, do give it a chance. And if you haven't heard it through, if you haven't heard before and you are not a Justin Bieber fan, trust me, it's it's nothing like the the baby uh, that, that Barry was singing a few seconds ago. Uh, it's nothing like that. You found some other stuff interesting this past week, Barry, and it sounds pretty cool, uh, a place I'm very lucky to have gone to myself. Oh, I'm so jealous, Chad, but now I can get to go myself in a virtual Yay. way. We're talking about the Louvre in Paris, one of the most famous art galleries in the world. And of course, the home to potentially the most famous piece in the yeah. world, uh, the Mona Lisa. And uh, what's been quite exciting is that they have decided, I think a lot of museums have been starting to do this. But in this new remote world where we're all sitting at home and not going anywhere, Chad, Museums trying to find ways to bring that art to the people. And so what the Louvre have decided to do is they decided to list over 480,000 of their artworks wow. in a new digital database. And so Amazing. for absolutely for free, you can go and they call it the Louvre at home. You can go and look at over 480,000 artworks, which I think is really, really special, Chad. So yeah. if you can't get to the Louvre in person, you can still sit at home and have a virtual tour of some of the most amazing art in the world. And uh, what, I, what, I, what I want to chat about, Chad, is that, like, do you feel like this gives away some of the magic in a sense? Like part of the magic of going to a museum is seeing something you can't see mm. anywhere else. Yeah. And so I think the question that, that people are grappling with is that, does this cheapen the experience or is it just a lovely ancillary thing that's going to actually convince you to say, okay, let me go see these things in person. What do you think on that debate? Yeah, I, I, I do think it, I do think it kind of cheapens the experience a bit, to be honest. I mean, the whole point of being in a museum in my experience is the fact that you're a couple of meters away from this thing that has historical significance. Um, and obviously, you know, there's normally a little write up next to, to kind of understand uh, you know, because not not all of us are uh, art, you know, geniuses. We we don't all understand uh, every single, you know, every little nuance in every in every single artist, uh, whether a sculptor or or painter, whatever the case is. And and, and of course, there's also the, the historical bits and pieces as well. Um, whether it is a little piece of, of rock that was found from you know however long and has history traces to whatever previous era. Um, that's for me is the, the, the significance in going to a museum is, is standing in front of an object and saying, wow, I, Chad, am standing a couple of meters away from this thing that has traveled however long and, and that is an object of desire uh, the whole world over. 
Uh, and so, you know, the, the, one of the great things about the Louvre and what I thoroughly enjoyed about it when, when I went there, because it is, it's, it's overwhelming. There's so much to see, um, is, is I actually went and did the audio tour, the audio guide. And what they actually give you is a Nintendo 3DS, uh, where, where you obviously have the two screens. Uh, and of course, you, you plug the audio guide in. Um, and you can then basically pick a route because, you know, if you were to see every single thing in the Louvre, um, <laughs> you, you're going to be there a long time. Uh, but you can basically do like a highlights tour as an example. And it actually kind of 3D maps out the map of the museum, uh, which takes you from checkpoint to checkpoint. Uh, and within that audio guide experience, um, I just felt I just found it something you, you can't replicate um, from actually being in the Louvre and and jumping piece to piece um you know in in that way and also part of it is the crowds i feel feel like part of it is the crowds and having to kind of wrestle with your your two seconds with the mona lisa she's tiny barry (laughs) she's really tiny um i believe believe. (laughs) um kind of underwhelming in a a little way um but but yeah you know having to wrestle your way through the crowds and 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 all that kind of stuff i i certainly think that that's part of the whole experience um, what do you think? Do you agree? I agree to a point, but I also think that we have to remember that there's only a tiny, tiny percentage of the world that's going to have the resources and the ability yep. to travel to the Louvre and actually experience it, right? Sure. And so what this does is it makes this amazing fountain of human art and this, this human experience and expression accessible to a much wider audience of people. And so I, I, I fully understand that, that actually seeing it in person is a million times better than seeing a, a JPEG on your computer <laughs> screen, right? But but there's unfortunately there's only there's only very few of us who can have the the privilege to be able to go and visit it and, and pay the money yeah. to get there and all that sort of thing, and so if you're sitting on the other side of the world without the means but but you've been reading about this you're an art fan you're an art history yeah. fanatic, this must be absolutely amazing to be able to go and experience this thing in a virtual way. And I can almost see this becoming the first step towards some sort of virtual reality experience down the line, right? So I imagine down the line, you're going to be able to put on some sort of headsets and you're going to be able to walk through the the museum in a virtual way. Um, And so I'm all for making art more accessible. I think that to hold it in a museum and charge crazy amounts of money really keeps it within this elite kind of um, Mm. group of people. And as someone who loves museums, and, and that's that's all I do when I go overseas, I visit museums, I, I really love them. I wish more people had the opportunity to kind of experience it. And so while it's not a perfect thing, while it's not doesn't match up to the real deal, yeah. I'm very happy to see this, this sort of thing happening just because it opens that audience up to much, much, much bigger people, much, much bigger group of people. Um, and hopefully will inspire inspire new artists and inspire creatives and inspire people by being able to see some of the best art in the world. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully it does just that. Um, but my, my one question is certainly when you, when you go to the next level, which is what you mentioned, Barry, and that is the, the virtual reality element of it. My question is whether you, when you have that capability, whether you keep it authentic, whether you keep it the Louvre in the exact same layout in the with the exact same flaws and the, the exact same orientation of the pieces as they are or whether you then start to become a bit of a video game and they start to play around with all sorts of other little fancy layouts and interactive <laughs> elements and all sorts of other other kind of stuff i mean do you think as a as an art lover uh you do you, do you think that you know they'll they'll take that temptation or, or will they try and keep it an authentic experience when it gets to that level which i know we're jumping ahead of ourselves 
I think they'll do both, Chad. I think they'll do both. I don't see any reason to to not to not do both. Um, you want to try and cater to whatever sort of experience you want. And I, I was reading a, a while ago about interesting kind of application of this. Imagine, Chad, if you could go with some sort of virtual experience and visit three or four of the biggest museums in the world in one experience and kind of see how they link together instead mm. of, like you say, going to the Louvre and spending your six hours there and focusing only on the Louvre. And so there's lots of interesting curations, lots of interesting journeys you could create if you have a, a availability to a wide range of stuff that you couldn't do in a physical location. So I'm sure there will be a virtual experience of just the Louvre itself, where you kind of self-walk and you kind of see exactly what it looks like as as preserved, as traditional as it could be. Yep. But then there's also going to be thousands of other ones that, de- that are developed for different reasons, for school trips, for art history lessons, for, for um, all sorts of things based on different criteria and different reasons for seeing certain types of art. As you can imagine, 480,000 pieces of art is overwhelming, like you say. And sure. so we need curators who know, what's, who know what they're talking about to be able to pull out the insights and pull out the, the relevant stuff for us and then deliver it to us in some sort of an experience. One of the things I think people struggle with in museums, if, if you don't go to a lot of museums, it can be very, very overwhelming to walk in yep. and you see there's 18 floors of 3,000 different exhibits and you don't know where to start. And often people are a little bit like not ashamed but embarrassed because they feel like they should be more cultured and know where to start right and so there's a lot to be done in kind of breaking those barriers down and helping first-time viewers helping first-time museum visitors to understand how should i even tackle this how like when i go to the louvre how should i tackle this and you mentioned this this like little nintendo 3ds that gives you all those things and so i imagine there's gonna be lots of those in the virtual space that will cater to different needs and different like levels of interest. Like for example, some people, they only want to see the Mona Lisa because they just want the picture with the Mona Lisa, right? Whereas yep. other people actually want to delve deeper than the Mona Lisa. And so you want to have things that cater to all of those people across the spectrum. But the question remains, is virtual reality actually going to work? I mean, we've been talking about VR for years now and it's still not here. And so I'm still a little bit skeptical as to how soon things are coming and how realistic it's actually going to be. Um, I think we might still be a couple a couple years away. Yeah, I think I think potentially. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the big one of the big uh, obstacles and hurdles is also the the amount of data transfer that needs to happen for for that to be possible. Um, and certainly, five G is supposed to be this technology that unlocks all of that possibility. So, so let's see if now that we now we have five G, whether it it does lead to the, this type of innovation. Um, but I want to quickly touch on that point you raised, Barry, about linking between museums in different countries. Um, and, you know, it's a fascinating thing. Obviously, it's, it's an area that I'm, you know, not super well versed in. Um, but it's always really interesting when I, when I talk to someone who is. Uh, and the kind of politics behind why certain countries retain certain pieces that actually should be in other places. You know, it's it's the stuff in the UK that should really be in India and should really be in, in Egypt and, you know, whatever the case is. I find that quite fascinating. Yeah, Chad, there really should be more movies about this because there's so much drama behind the scenes in this oh, yeah. world. Um, and the, the art world and museum world is very territorial because all you kind of are, are basing your value on is the things in your museum, right? Obviously. Mm. And so if you've got something that's super valuable and super rare, um, you want to keep that by all costs. But the nature of these developing these developed world museums is a lot of these things were stolen from the countries yeah, that they, they colonize or the countries yeah. that they kind of 
took over. Um, and so there's a great comedy special by James A. Kester, and he kind of talks a little bit about this, talking about how all the Africans are going back to the UK now and saying, can we have our stuff back, please? Yeah. And the UK is like, no, 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 we, it's, it's in a glass. You can look at it, but you can't have it back. You can look at it, pay us and you can look at it, even though it's your stuff, yeah, you know, we'll take it back. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's a lot of drama in that sense. And I don't think that we've really delved into that um, in a very serious way. It, it's not a high priority for a lot of people. And so they've kind of been able to get away with it. And so you do end up having like very valuable and not just valuable, but sentimental items to certain tribes and certain cultures that really are incredibly like timeless, valueless pieces that are sitting in a glass case in Paris or in London or in New York, et cetera. And so, yeah, I, I don't know what, I don't know if we're ever going to see that change, Chad, because unfortunately the way that, that this, these properties work and these museums are going to hold onto it for dear life. They're not going to give those away. It's fascinating though. Uh, you know, as, as someone who, like I said, d doesn't really know all of the journeys of all these different pieces. And, you know, when you do realize actually they're stolen pieces, I'm, I'm standing in front of a stolen piece uh, in essence, uh, it, it's fascinating. And hopefully we do see a lot more about it in the future. Right, Barry, talking about the future, shall we look ahead? Let's do it. Looking ahead. We've been talking quite a lot about this kind of melting together of live audio and social networking. Uh, and of course, we've been talking about Clubhouse, uh, which has been a raging success if you consider uh, how it's it's really put the big players on, on the back foot. Everyone's trying to catch up and, and produce offerings that uh, are you know similar to it. And that's quite a remarkable achievement if you, if you think about the fact that this platform started out as an invite-only platform and also a platform that is only currently working on iOS devices. Uh, I mean, think about the, the the millions of Android users out there who just haven't been able to participate in, in everything that is Clubhouse. So talking about this and the evolution of it and the evolution of the space, Barry, um, I saw that Discord, which is a company we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, have now launched something called Stage Channels. And it sounds to <laughs> me like the exact replica of Clubhouse. So essentially what you have here is a channel within Discord uh, where you have a group of speakers and you have moderators and moderators can mute people, you know, sign permissions, add or remove speakers, all of that kind of stuff. It's Clubhouse. <laughs> Chad, I, I wonder if, say, say you're the CEO of Clubhouse and you've developed this incredibly innovative kind of format and it's really taking yeah. off. Are, are you flattered by the fact that everyone is just copy pasting you <laughs> or is it super frustrating that you've kind of, you've built this thing and now all these giants with like way more money than you are now jumping into the space and trying to copy you. Would, would you be flattered, Chad, or would you be annoyed? <laughs> Put it this way. I'd be flattered if it's, if, if the indirect effect of it is that my valuation drives up and it looks like that is what's happening. Uh, so, I mean, this, this past week, there's rumors of a, a valuation of $4 billion or something like that, Barry. Chad, it's an insane number, and it, it's all rumors. But apparently, Twitter offered four billion dollars for for Clubhouse. 
Um, and if you think about the fact that they have 35 employees, Chad, just think about wow. how crazy that is wow. to have a $4 billion company with wow. 35 employees that is making zero revenue. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And it's, it's kind of indicative of, of what I think is a bubble in Silicon Valley and these valuations just get crazier and crazier every single one we see. And so $4 billion is a big number and that's up from who knows what a few months ago, Chad. So absolutely crazy. There's other rumors that Facebook are trying to buy them as well. And so Zuck is pulling out his checkbook as well. Ooh. So I think there's lots of lots, lots to look at looking for Clubhouse going forward. <laughs> yeah, I think the last time they went out for funding, uh, they had uh, kind of, you know, based on the, uh, the, the kind of equity amounts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it looks like the valuation they were looking at at that point in time was a quarter of that, Barry. Um, so, you know, the, uh, it, within a short space of time, that valuation has grown dramatically. Um, and I think it's a really, really interesting space to watch. I mean, I keep saying it every week we, we talk about it. Um, I think it's a really, really interesting space to watch. I mean, as, as we talk about that, you and I are um, on a live streaming platform. Obviously one that, that has, I'd say, limitations in, in terms of having you know people tune in and, and ask questions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but but even even our little platform right now, I mean, we've we've kind of upgraded now to the next version of Ecamm Live, and there are so many new features uh, that I'm I'm dying to get into. And this is a piece of software that was developed by literally two brothers, Barry. Uh, Ken and Glenn, I can't, I can't pronounce their surnames. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a long and hard to pronounce surname. Um, but it's just remarkable, really, when you, when you start to look at some of the technology that, that's coming out of bedrooms. Uh, and, you know, like you say, it's certainly talking about Clubhouse, uh, 35 employees, it's just ridiculous. It really is indicative of how the world has changed when it comes to startups and technology. If you look back 20 years ago, starting a business was absolutely almost impossible because you had to build everything from scratch yourself. You had to build all the tech, the databases, the the, the bandwidth, the, the product design, everything you're building from scratch. And that meant that very few people were able to do it because it required a very specific skill set. Whereas mm. in today's world, Chad, all of those pieces of the puzzle are all commoditized, right? So you go to Salesforce, you get your CRM. You go to Squarespace, yeah. you get your website. You go to, to all of these players, Zendesk for customer support. And you kind of use them as Lego pieces to build a business. Yep. With basically no skill you know, on your on, on your own, right? All you have to do is have a good idea and a way to execute on it, and and it really is very easy these days to do it. Add that to the fact that there's so much money, especially in Silicon Valley and in the startup ecosystem, to get these things off the ground. It's amazing to see what's happening. I mean, we saw a yeah. similar thing with Spotify and a lot of these ginormous companies who are very, very lean. They don't have thousands of employees like, like people used to have back in the day. Um, they really are very, very lean. And I think if you're an investor or if you're a founder in one of those companies, it really is a rocket ship because yeah. you're on this thing. You're an evaluation of a billion dollars or, or plus. And you still have no revenue, which to an accountant like me, Chad, still seems crazy. <laughs> I still struggle to understand the concept of valuing something at four billion dollars when yeah. the revenue side of the balance, the revenue side of the income statement says zero. I still can't get my head around that. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Uh, it, it's all it's all about the hype and the, the you know the potential of the company. You know. It's, it is really confusing. And with a lot of these companies, when they start to turn that revenue tap on um, is, is when they, they start to sometimes see challenges. We, we see a lot of companies struggling to, to monetize. And it's a key topic that we keep touching on as well. Um, because ultimately, if you're going to start something, why are you starting it if not to make money, right? Um, and, and of course, for the founders, 
what a wonderful story to hopefully be able to sell this business at a crazy valuation uh and and you know basically th- their life is done um after, after making that kind of money from it but ultimately it's, it's what what happens next with that what happens when it does join the stables of twitter or facebook or whatever the case is what are they going to do to turn on monetization um and you're right at the moment it's perplexing uh without any revenue the one revenue model that i did read about that i found quite interesting is very different to what most people think most people think it's going to be advertising of some sorts and i think it's a pretty safe bet they're gonna have some Hmm. sort of advertising in 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 whatever function they can make it but there's another interesting one that that i came across because of my interest in ai talking about maybe they sell the the audio data in some way to be used for natural language processing Right. So at the moment, like when you go on Clubhouse, everything is public, right? And so the idea is that um, you kind of you're 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 accessing that and you're kind of speaking publicly on this platform. And there's so much data in that that is different to say a podcasting data or different to other sort of conversational audio because it's very interactive, it's not very produced, it's very kind of raw and real. And when it comes to machine learning, when we're trying to understand natural language in a very serious way, that can be a really, really powerful data set. And so it opens up, of course, all sorts of privacy concerns and all sorts of ethical considerations. But there there is a real opportunity there to use this data in a way that can make our natural language processing algorithms a gazillion times better. Because then the amount of data that's coming out of Clubhouse right now is absolutely fascinating. And so I'm sure they're debating that around the table at the moment and trying to figure out if there's something there or not. Um, But personally, I... (laughs) I'm still a little bit skeptical of the product, Chad. I haven't opened it this mm, whole week. Same. And so I'm yeah, a little bit skeptical too. still yep. about whether this is going to be a fad or not. And so when you when you get a valuation of $4 billion, it's amazing for sure. And it's very exciting. But imagine the pressure. Imagine the pressure you're under from your shareholders to now deliver on these crazy projections that you've shown in your PowerPoint. It's very easy to make an Excel chart and go, go up to the right, right? It's very, very easy. You just play with a few assumptions, increase the growth Indeed. rate, and you're good to go. It's much more difficult to actually do it in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, $4 billion, uh, a lot of pressure there, Chad. Completely. Uh, well, like I said, uh, we're going we're gonna to keep talking about it um, because it's certainly not a topic that's going away. Barry, I've had a, I've had a whole bunch of fun. Um, and I think, well... Obviously, the first part of our conversation was not so fun, but in this last little bit, talking about the Louvre and Bruno Mars and Discord, uh, Clubhouse, all that kind of stuff, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but I think we're about to get a bit deep. Um, so I've, I've kind of changed the background, uh, just to just kind of change the ambience, change the mood. Are you ready to get deep? I'm ready, Chad. Let's do it. <laughs> Develop and grow. Alrighty, so let's kick off uh, with with what you wanted to chat about in Develop and Grow, Barry. Um, and, and that is a quote from a man whose book I'm currently still reading. Um, and it's, it's not a light read at all. Um, but <laughs> but I'll, I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. So, uh, yeah. What, what did you want to chat about? Barry? Yeah, so his, his name is Viktor Frankl. And he's, he's famous for the book that you're reading at the moment, A Man's Search for Meaning, which I think is one of the most powerful books written in the, in the 20th century. Um, like you say, very, very dark. It, it tells a story of his experiences in the concentration camps back in World War II. Um, and what I think he really did well was he displayed, I can't remember what the philosophy was called, but a philosophy of understanding why you do what you do. 
his whole thing was if there's a reason to stay alive, if there's a reason to keep going, you're going to be able to endure anything. And that's kind of what one of his more famous ideas. But I came across this quote this week, and I thought it was really powerful, Chad. And so I just thought I'd read it very shortly. It goes like this. If we take man as he really is, we make him worse. But if we overestimate him, if we seem to be idealists and are overestimating, overrating man and looking at him that high here above, you know what happens? We promote him to what he really can be. Now that goes from man and woman. Of course, he's just saying yeah. man here because that was how it was back in the day. But but people in general is that if we see people for who they are in the moment and we kind of expect um, like and we kind of judge them based on those individual momentary um, occurrences, we're going to be very disappointed, right? Because humans are flawed. Humans are, are difficult. Humans are, are stubborn. And um, we're not always on our best behavior, Chad. There's a lot of times where we are Definitely. falling far far below our potential. But if we're able to take an objective, not objective, sorry, if we're able to take a optimistic viewpoint and overestimate what, what people are capable of and give them the benefit of the doubt, we give them something to live up to. And I love that idea because so often we get cynical about the world. We get cynical about ourselves. We get cynical about the people around us. And we kind of think, okay, well, that's just who they are, right? But if we actually give them the benefit of the doubt and look for the good in them, look for the power, look for the potential, just giving them that, that space to grow and that space to develop is going to encourage them to, to reach up and, and become better people. Mm. We've chatted a lot about in the past about the people you surround yourself with have a huge okay. influence on who you become and who you are. And so what I want from the, my friends and the, and the kind of person that I want to be is I want to overestimate people. I want to really give them the benefit of the doubt and say, listen, I trust you with this. I think you're going to make it yeah. work. I'm, I'm, I'm betting for you. I'm rooting yeah. for you because that's how we pull people up out of mediocrity and to something special. And so it's, it's just a quick quote to say like we need to be more a little bit more idealistic about what humanity is all about. I believe humans are good inherently, and I think that the world gets in the way sometimes. Um, but if we are able to overestimate people, we give them the chance to grow and kind of develop. What do you think about that, Joe? Barry, you're not, you're not stepping short of your, uh, your optimistic uh, sort of his nature. I see Barry as as, as this optimist uh, who, who who chooses to see the light. Uh, who, you know, who chooses to see things in the best way possible. And and this kind of quote uh, just just makes that shine really. Um, and and you're right. I mean, if you think about it, certainly just in our kind of workplace environment or you know our career to date. If you think about the managers who. Uh, were, were kind of skeptical and, and didn't want to hand things off to you and you look at your growth during that period as opposed to someone who who was prepared to throw you in the deep end um, I mean I you know I've I was very lucky to to have had one manager who I mean I was I was I was in the boardroom making presentations to you know boards of, of listed companies um, being in a small tiny little audit firm um, and and so it is it is because of that because of you know being given given that room to to develop and being given that room to to see if you can swim uh, where you are actually able to step up and and get to the challenge ultimately if there's this flaw uh, that you you can't break through you can never show your full potential um, and so I think even when we look at we look at ourselves as well. Uh, it's almost like we impose our own flaws, right? And, and and I think that that's another way of looking at this this quote is if if we're not able to just look at the people around us and, and kind of promote the best in them uh, or overestimate them, but what if we're able to overestimate ourselves? 
um, surely there's a bit of a trick there too. Yeah, definitely. It's such a good point. And it's something I was going to bring up as well is that if we apply this to ourselves, we can get away from those stories that are holding us back. We all, we all have these insecurities and these stories we tell ourselves about ourselves because say in the last two weeks, I've been eating really poorly and I say to myself, oh, I can just never eat clean. Every time I try, it falls apart. And you can choose to believe that story your whole life and just like never break out of that, that pattern because you keep saying to yourself, well, that's just who I am and that's just how it's going to be, right? And you can kind of resign yourself to the person that you are right now. Or you can make a choice and you can choose to say that, me as a human being, I'm malleable. I have an opportunity to grow. I, I'm capable of more than who I am today. Mm. And it's just that belief that is necessary to force yourself out of that, that, that period of stagnation. You're never going to become a different person or a better person if you don't believe you've got a shot, right? That's kind of the prerequisite. If you don't believe you've got a shot at being, at being better than who you are today, then, then you're never going to get out of the starting blocks. And so in my mind, you can choose to live a life where you're just going to accept the person that you are today for the rest of your life. Or you can say, no, screw that. I actually can overestimate myself. I am capable of more. And there's going to be moments where I overestimate myself and I fall short, right? And I feel yeah, really yeah. terrible about myself. And we have to get through those periods. But that's where this never-ending optimism is so important in my, in, my, in my perspective is because Optimism is what keeps you going when the universe keeps punching you in the face and punching you in the face and punching you in the face. Yep. The optimist keeps saying, next time it's going to be different. Next time I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> and that's what all this is about is that you have a choice as how you live your life. And in my opinion, choosing to be optimistic, choosing to overestimate what you are capable of and what people around you are capable of, it's just a much more fulfilling way to look at your, your life then kind of resigning yourself to the lowest common denominator. We all have those people in our lives who are cynics, who kind of are very negative Nancy's, who see yep. the problems in everything, who shoot down every single idea. And I think it's important to get away from those people and surround yourself with people that are optimists, that are overestimating themselves, because that's how we pull ourselves by our bootstraps. And we say, okay, Barry, you had a really terrible week, but it's okay. You're going to figure this stuff out. You're going to get better. You're going to make better decisions next week. And that's just how you go along. And some call it self-delusion. Some people call it naivety. Some people call it, you know, all those things. And you just have to ignore those people because it doesn't matter. Your psychology matters and the story you tell yourself matters. And uh, in my opinion, that's the only way to live. Wow. Yeah. Uh, com completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, th the thing that I wanted to talk about today um, is potentially addressed by this point, Barry. So, so being able to choose optimism and and uh, and all of that kind of stuff but talking about cynical this past so I, i'm going to get a bit vulnerable here today everyone um this past week over this easter break um after after this easter break i've i've been feeling very cynical very very cynical um and the the, the kind of root cause of this is obviously here in the uk we've, we've chatted about it uh, there's been some easing, and so of late, you've been allowed to to meet some people outdoors. And one of the wonders of social media is that you get to see what everyone is up to. And uh, I mean, essentially, uh, f f people who are friends have been kind of having brides and get-togethers in kind of gardens, virtual virtual events, picnics in the parks, and and I wasn't invited to any of it. Uh, and, and so, 
you know, I felt I felt quite down this weekend, Barry. I'm I'm gonna be completely honest. I felt very down. Um, because obviously we've been locked indoors and we've not been able to do things. And now that now that you know we we're easing and we're able to do this kind of stuff, you you'd like to think that you you know you you're needed in a group, right? You your your presence is is missed. Um and so to not kind of crack an invite um has really made me overthink this to the nth degree. Now I, as a person, inherently am an overthinker. Um, I like to tell myself that I prefer being an overthinker than just living life and and kind of, you know, just being uh, blasé about everything. I'd, I'd, I'd like to analyze things and try and understand, uh, like you say, very common denominators. But just this weekend has made me kind of question every single friendship I've had in my life thus far uh, and, and go really quite deep into it um you know i i believe i've had friendships in the past where you know people are friends with me because they want something from me uh whether that is an, an actual tangible so obviously i i do photography and in the past i used to do videos and you know whether whether that is doing videos for people or or you know all that kind of stuff or on a on a lesser tangible side where it, it's it's a, it's a matter of being there for someone as as a person that they can kind of lay into with all of their insecurities and doubts and whatever the case is. And then, you know, once they're kind of okay again, you, you never hear from them. Um, so, so, so it's made me question all of that, Barry. Um, it's also made me kind of look to my sort of insecurities and kind of doubt whether I have value to provide in a social environment as, as a person who spends the far majority of my downtime on pursuits that benefit me. So, you know, improving skills, whether that's photography or video or music or what, or with all this podcast as an example, um, potentially I'm, I'm missing out on some like socially relevant stuff, right? Uh, some of the trends that, that have been going out there or, uh, you know, general knowledge or, or whatever the case is, maybe in a social situation, I, I don't have that much value to provide. Um, and you know, it, it's something that I've been thinking about. Um, and then also, you know, it, it kind of makes me think about all of the bigger events that I've, I've missed and not been invited to. So obviously these, these small events, you know, we, we kind of pass them off, but when you think about weddings and when you think about people whose weddings you thought you would have been invited to, uh, people who you invite to your wedding as an example, um, and, and you just didn't get an invite, it hurts. It, it really hurts. And, and, and you know, this week has, has kind of made me feel low because of that. It, it's kind of made me think about all of these things. Um, and, you know, it kind of just casts that shadow, that, that kind of cynical view on, on people as a whole. And, and I know you see people very differently, Barry. Um, but but I'm keen, to, I'm keen to, to hear your take on this kind of stuff. Because, you know, after thinking about all of this stuff, I understand that a lot of this is a very radical reaction um, to something that can probably be explained. Um, but that said, it, it is how I feel. Um, and so how would you kind of approach this as Barry the Optimist? And how would you kind of get back on track uh, when, when you kind of start to unravel the, the cord as far as I have done? Um, you know, after this, this weekend, that really was supposed to be quite a lift. 
So there's a lot to unpack there, Chad. Um, but first, first thing I want to say is that those feelings are valid and I don't mm. think you should shy away from them. And I think it's very brave to share them because they are way more common than you realize. I think one of the one of the tragic parts of the 21st century of this social media connected world is that in a lot of cases, we are much lonelier than we were before um, because, because friendships are different in this new age, especially in a pandemic. And, and so things have changed a lot. And so those feelings are valid. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I've always got it together. Like I, I have those moments as well where yeah. I feel completely pissed off with my friends and pissed off at things that I'm not invited to. And I have to have those same feelings, Chad. And so I'm not, I'm not always sunshines and, and, and rainbows. <laughs> Um, and I think I think it comes down to an understanding that what I've been thinking about a lot in the recently is that your friendships in your late 20s and early 30s are very different to what they were in, say, the varsity days, right? So one of the things that I've struggled with over the last couple of years is that most of my good friends have moved overseas over the last couple yeah. of years. And it's one of those things where, like... <sighs> You, you can try and keep a friendship up when you're living in different countries, but it's very difficult. And people mm. kind of go their separate ways. They get married. They start families. They they do all that thing. And it becomes a very different story. And so I think it's a very common problem. And I don't think, I don't think it's something that is radical in, in, in your words. Yeah. I think it's a completely natural response to, to what's happened. Looking to solve it, first of all, I, I don't think that, that – knowing more about the current affairs is going to make a difference. I don't think that's, that's the issue, right? Um, I think that when it, when it comes to the, the kinds of things that we are doing as people, like this, all this personal development stuff, the podcasting, the videos, all the stuff that we're doing to try and develop ourselves, that is a trade-off we've made. Yeah. We, we have made a trade-off to say, we're going to sacrifice some of our social life, some of our free time, some of our movies to go and take this path. And I think that there's there's nobility in that because we think that's more important than going to three brides on a weekend, for example, because it's going to develop us and give us more fulfillment. So I, so we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to those people who are not putting any effort in to improve themselves and are just kind of living their best life and and going out every single weekend and and whatnot because that's a different life choice that they've made. And 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 for us, I mean, assuming it's still the case, but for me, it definitely is like that's a trade off I'm willing to make every single time. If I can invest in myself, I want to do that as best as I can. And so I don't think it's it's a matter of if you just knew more current affairs that you'd be able to, to interact in those situations, right? Mm. I don't think it's that. The next piece is that friendships are difficult. They require investment from both parties. And it's often it's often difficult because it's almost inevitable that friends are going to feel differently towards each other. There's, there's very rarely where you've got a true 50-50 yeah. belief as to, okay, I need you and you need me sure. in that sense. There are always dynamics. And it, we can look at all of our lives and we can we can point to friends that we need more than they need us. And we can point yeah. to friends that that they need us more than we need them. So all of these things are, are difficult. And 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 uh, there's these range of concentric circles around our, our groups of who matters to us. And when someone close to us who matters to us doesn't invite us to a wedding or doesn't invite us to an event, it hurts for a reason because we we generally mm. thought there was something there. Yeah. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that feeling and to not brush it away, not try and say, okay, there's a there's a reason for this. Like actually sit in it and try and figure out, okay, cool, mm. what is why am I feeling this? And most of the time, when you do that introspection and you actually dig down beyond the shallow surface level, what you find, like you say, well, like you mentioned, is an insecurity of some sort is this belief that I'm not interesting enough or I'm not mm. um, a good enough friend or I'm not good enough for this person or wh whatever the insecurity is that we all hide like deep down inside of us. 
that is what's causing these feelings for the most part. It's not that person being malicious and not inviting you. It, it's, it's your response that is what you can control. You can't tell someone that you can't be like angry at someone because they didn't invite you to their wedding. Yeah. Right. It's like if anyone has ever planned a wedding, you know, the guest list is an absolute nightmare because there's so many like like politics. There's so many different things you have to consider. Um, And if you're going to, if you're going to hold yourself accountable to the number of weddings you get invited to, you're going to drive yourself insane. (laughs) So the way I try and look at it is what can I control? Can I try and invest in that friendship? If there's a friendship that I feel like is lagging a bit, um, what can I do? Can I host the bri? Can I invite them across? Can I can I do the right thing in my perspective? I don't care about other people and what they're going to invite me to. Yeah. If I want to do something, I want to be the person who goes first. And that's been a philosophy that I've done, that I've kind of really been focusing on the last couple of years and it's made a big difference for me is that rather than stewing because my friend hasn't messaged me in a week or two, right? So rather than being like, Oh, damn it, why didn't he message me? And there's this weird ego game we play because yeah. you don't want to be the person to look too needy or too clingy. So, and so and, and it's the same in relationships as well. It happens yep. in all yep. of these exactly. things. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great philosophy to say, screw that. I don't care about my pride. I don't care about any of that. I'm going to be one that goes first. And if I feel like there's a friendship that I really value and that I, I'm hurt that the fact that it hasn't worked out the way I thought it was, can I do the right thing and actually invite them for dinner? Can I organize something myself and, and kind of be proactive in that sense? Because at the end of the day, you have to do what's right for you, right? Yeah. And if you need that friendship in your life, then you got to fight for it. Um, and I don't think it's worth worrying about someone else's incentives or someone else's uh, reasons for wanting you around or whether they want you for the photography or they want you for whatever the story is. None of that stuff matters because you're never going to find an answer. <laughs> the friend's never going to phone you and say, yeah, there is a reason I haven't been chatting to you. It's because I don't need photography right now. Like you're never going to hear that sentence, right? <laughs> um, and so the only thing you can control is your response to these situations. Th- that's, oh, what point is that? Three or four. The last <laughs> point I want to make is that um, something that I've been notoriously bad at in the past and is trying to keep a thousand friendships going and then being upset when I can't invest enough in each friendship to make it work, right? I think that's what I did throughout my varsity days. My friends would laugh at me because I'd try and go to four different parties on a weekend and spend like (laughs) half an hour at each, which is completely pointless and stupid. Um, And with some age and some wisdom, I've realized that it's okay if my circle gets quite small and much smaller because I can spend the depth of time with people that I really care about. And so what I, what I question you, Chad, is to think about those friendships and identify, are those the people that are really ride or die? They're going to be there for you through thick and thin for the rest of your life. Are they part of that close circle of eight to 10 people or whatever the number is that is really going to be there for you? If that's the case, then be proactive and fight for that friendship and go in and take action to try and invest in that friendship. But often case, we get we get annoyed by people on Instagram that we, we're sort of friends with and we see at a party and we cordial with, but yeah. like we don't actually know what's going on in their life. We don't actually share anything beyond the shallow, the, the surface stuff. And so I don't know what the situation is with your side, but I would do a little bit of introspection there to identify who are the, the core circle that I really care about and how can I invest in those friendships? And then the rest of them, you can't drive yourself crazy thinking about what their thoughts are. All you can do is kind of, Look after yourself. Look after the people around you. And if you really want to see them, like make make the plan yourself. Just mm. go first. By going first, it's 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 going to get you what you need. It's going to get you that social interaction. It's going to invest in that friendship. And then you don't have to worry about what they think. Like 
invite them for dinner four times in a row. Isn't isn't the scoreboard that we have to keep? Okay, I have to invite you, and then you invite me, right? <laughs> I invite you to my wedding, then you have to invite me to your wedding. Yeah, yeah. So the scoreboards don't exist. Yeah. And when we start to think about it in that way, we drive ourselves insane. So I feel like I've waffled for a long time now, Chad. Does any of that make sense or resonate with you at all? I, I don't think it was waffle at all. I think it's given me a heck of a lot, um, you know, to to kind of sit with and, and think about. Uh, and, you know, I'm certainly going to go rewatch the segment and, and talk about it. But for the, the gist, of, the gist of, of what I took from that, Barry, um, and, and I appreciate that, you know, you kind of talk to the bits of this that you've experienced yourself um, because I, I definitely think that helps. Um, but, you know, number one, it's okay to feel what I'm feeling. Sit with it, sit with those emotions. Number two, there are some insecurities there that, that kind of need to be worked through uh, at some point in time. Uh, and then, you know, most importantly, uh, number three is is go first. Yeah, this idea of go first. And I, and I think that's I think that's key. So I think, yeah, those, those are the kind of key bits that, that I took from it. Um, and, you know, I, I took, I, I definitely... I definitely like the fact that you kind of eased eased my mind about uh, social references and all, all of that kind of stuff. Um, because you're right, we, we've we've made it we've made a decision, right? Um, you you only have so many hours in a day, and you know you can't you can't please everyone ultimately, and you can't you know you can't be great in every single facet of your life. Um, sorry, did you want to mm. you want to say something quick? No, I just want to reiterate mm. the point. It's something I've struggled with my whole life is this idea of trade-offs. Um, I, I'm a very ambitious person and I want to be good at everything. That's always what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I want to be able to go into a room and control a room with any conversation. And it's taken a lot of time to realize that it's just not possible, right? This is not enough hours in the day. And so the trade-offs that you make for the life you want to lead, you have to accept that it comes with sacrifices. Definitely. You have to accept that you're not going to be able to go to a bri and spend six hours there on a Saturday because you might actually have work to do. You might have something mm. else on and you have to work that into your schedule. When you start a family, you make a lot of sacrifices and you have to accept those sacrifices and those trade-offs because of what you're growing with, with, with your family, right? And so I think a lot of people, when they grow, when they start families, they find their friends disappear because all of a sudden you can't relate to each other and those sorts of things. And so everything in life is a trade-off. And so often when we're in these moments of despair, we're in these moments of darkness, when the insecurities are really showing themselves, we have to remind ourselves why we, why we are in this position. Like what trade-offs did we make? Yeah. What choices do we make to get to this place? You could very easily, Chad, throw all your hobbies away and become a complete socialite and you begin invited to all of these things because you'd be yeah. there every single time, right? But one of the sacrifices we make when we start to, to take this more, this less trodden path where we're doing other stuff with our lives is that we're not as involved in those social, social circles anymore sure. because we're not relating to those people in, in, in the same way. And so that's something we have to acknowledge and accept. And it pushes us to find people who are in that same space who are in that same idea of growing and developing themselves. I, I never want to be comparing myself to someone on Instagram that's partying all the time because yeah. it just doesn't do yeah. me any good because that's yeah. not the life I want to live. Even though it looks fun in the stories and it looks fun to, to see it from afar, that's not the kind of person that I want to be. And so the moments I find myself comparing to that person, that's a problem. I want to be comparing myself to the person that's trying to build a business, who's trying to yeah. be creative, yeah. who sharing vulnerably and kind of creating stuff. That's who I want to be comparing myself to. And so, you know, be careful as to what Instagram stories you compare yourselves to because people have chosen very different lives for a reason. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, not not a whole lot more to add there, to be honest. I, I think I think that was wonderful and uh, you know, that's that's certainly gonna help me as well. And also obviously the, the you know, the the earlier part, uh, which is also the fact that you can take yourself out of the cynical uh state and uh force some optimism because I think when you are in that state, uh, it's it needs to be forced. It's something you need to you need to actively push um, because you know once you do start to see people cynically, um, it's it's not easy to to change that. Um, you know you kind of you, like you, you, you yeah you've told yourself all of these different stories that are so convincing, uh, they they ring so true. They they strike the perfect chord um, because you've lived your life you've had all of these millions of experiences and you resonate with all of them and you you, you put all of these links together and so that story is hard to just brush away it's hard to um, you know kind of just take the the strong feeling from that story and and kind of overlook it um, but it's possible it's hard but it is possible uh, and and I think that that is definitely key. Um, and just while, while we're talking about this, Barry, um, just just a comment coming through about how important this develop and grow segment of the podcast is. I mean, I know we're a bit over time, a bit over time. Gosh, we're nearly half an hour over time. <laughs> um, but but you're right. I think you know us being vulnerable and us talking about our insecurities, uh, whilst very uh, you know nerve wracking for us. Um, obviously, given the the kind of public nature, I think it I think it does give comfort. And you know, given that this the story that we all and this experience that we were living through is, is the the human experience, which is uh, one where we all share similar kinds of uh, experiences and similar kinds of feelings. Uh, certainly, not all exactly the same, um, but you know, kind of just talking through how we've dealt with certain situations can can definitely give people comfort. Um, so yeah, so so thanks thanks for for helping me out on that, uh, and hopefully in a week's time, I've got a bit of a different outlook, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Chad, it doesn't matter if it's in a week's time. You you yeah. can sit in this these feelings as long as you need to, right? There, there's there's no there's no need to kind of rush away from those feelings and and mm. push it aside and be like, cool, I'm now optimistic forever. It doesn't work like that, right? It, it's going to be one of the things that comes back time and time again, and we all go through those periods. And so, thank you for sharing. Thank you for being vulnerable. That takes a lot of courage. Um, and I hope that there are people out there that are listening. I'm sure they are that are going through mm. similar things and can take something from this conversation. I think that. So much of this comes from just not sharing about these things. Our insecurities, we kind of hold to ourselves and we, 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 we terrorize ourselves. If, if, if we were to talk to our friends in the same way we talk to ourselves, they wouldn't be our friends anymore. But for some reason, because we're talking to ourselves, we give ourselves the worst, the worst of it. And if you're able to talk about it to a friend and open up and be like, listen, I'm really struggling with this. I feel really shitty. I feel down because of X, Y, and Z. Just the act of talking about it and raising it, you'll be amazed at how many times the person goes, me too. I know exactly what you're feeling. I know yeah. exactly what you're going through. Definitely. And that's what the human experience is about. And unfortunately, social media gets in the way of that sometimes because people aren't honest. They aren't authentic online. They are kind of putting their best foot forward and yeah. never sharing this stuff. And so I think that... I want this podcast to be a place where we can share authentically and vulnerable and in a vulnerable way, because I think it does do good. And I think it does help people realize that the feelings you're dealing with, Chad, are are common and they are normal yeah. and they're valid, because we are social creatures and that stuff hurts. It hurts yeah. when we don't get that invite. It hurts, and and that's okay. Um, but but know that we can we can get past it. We can choose a different story over time. 
And if we go first and we put ourselves first and we, 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 we take care of the things that are bothering us by talking about it, um, that's the only way we can move forward. Otherwise, you become a cynic for life and you become that angry grandpa on the stoop who is, yep. is, is <laughs> raging against the world that yep. left him behind and didn't give him the life that he wanted, right? Yeah, yeah. None of us wants to be that guy on the stoop uh, resenting every, you know, every living being uh, because of the few experiences that he did have. So, yeah, thanks so much for that. And I, I agree. I think given the, the, the current climate, certainly here in the UK, now that we've got this easing, and everyone's making plans again because plans kind of fall in the wayside in the last year. Um, if if you do find yourself in the same situation as me, uh, hopefully I'm not alone. Hopefully I'm not, hopefully I'm not the only guy who's feeling this. Um, <laughs> you're but, not. You're not. But um, yeah, certainly some some wonderful words uh, of guidance from from Barry, and I, I I definitely think they'll they'll help you as well. So that has been the jam packed episode. I thought we would have Barry. Um, I think I can now change. Uh, change our background back to something a bit lighter and brighter <laughs> uh, just to close this one off um, but yeah I mean th thanks again as always for for a cracking episode thoroughly enjoyed it like I said a little bit nostalgic with, with the background um, and uh, yeah I mean we just got to keep the podcast going strong right Definitely, Chad. I'm looking forward to the new setup. I, I wish you all the best with the move. I know moving is chaotic, so I wish you all the best with that. Um, but I'm looking forward to yet another episode next week. Um, 74 is coming up next week, so I hope you'll tune in. And uh, yeah, it's been really cool, Chad. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye. Oh, across the